I mentioned last week that I wanted to begin with the last two verses uh, one more time to uh, kind of go over some uh, thoughts that, uh, that had to do with uh, uh, the connection between uh, uh, these particular verses and what we call the rapture of the church. And uh, as I bring that particular subject up to you, I, I know that it has been for, for many years a very uh, controversial subject, at least uh, uh, from some positions that people hold throughout the, the years in the church. Uh, it has always been Calvary Chapel's position uh, to teach in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, which means that the Lord would come in the clouds, as we will read in just a moment in First Thessalonians chapter 4, that the Lord would come in the clouds uh, to meet us. Uh, you know, the dead in Christ would rise first, and then we who are alive and remain would be caught up together with them. And uh, that would uh, be before the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. <clears throat> but uh, uh, as I had uh, kind of alluded to last time, uh, there aren't many uh, Old Testament uh, passages that really talk about that, mainly because it isn't a Jewish thing as much as it's a church thing, you know, the, the rapture of the church. But at the same time, we, we can look at certain passages in the scriptures that uh, would help us to see that God does, in fact, rescue his people at various times and in various ways. Certainly Enoch in Genesis uh, is one to consider and uh, Noah being taken above the flood and all of that. But anyway, we'll, we'll look at that. Uh, I, I wanted to look at this particular passage and I was going to do a little bit of it and go into chapter 27, but the more that I kept looking, the more that I began to realize that there is a lot more uh, to deal with this issue before we move on. So actually, if you were expecting chapter 27 tonight, just come next week because that's, that's when we'll get it, okay? So let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to understand and to rightly divide your word tonight. And may it be that from all of this we can learn something of what your word is saying about your, your soon return. And no matter what we believe and what we stand on in, in this particular subject, may we realize, Lord God, that uh, the, it isn't when you're coming, it's that you're coming. That's what's, that's what's important. The fact that you are coming and we need to be ready for it. And we should be living, Lord, accordingly. Uh, to to that and and the fact that you uh, encourage us Lord uh, as we study this last Sunday in the book of Acts uh, you know the very motivation that we have to live our lives for 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 Jesus is is the fact that he's coming again and, and that's what we want to to learn from all of this tonight but uh, Lord we thank you for the opportunity to do this and we pray that you will Lord God just bless and anoint your people this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, the earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Now, as I said, I, I mentioned last time, I wanted to look a little more closely at this passage of chapter 
26, as it pertains to the last days in particular, to Christ's coming for His church. The timing for what is called the rapture of the church has been a dividing point for much of the body of Christ over many years, and, and today is no exception. And while its timing is the primary issue for some in the church, its very literal existence as a vital event for the church's question, in other words, for some people it is only allegorical. Jesus isn't really coming back like we would want Him to. It's just one of those things that it is written that way in the Scripture so that we could kind of have hope, you know, for a good end of this particular life. But as we've been studying at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the Gospel of, uh, I should say, the Book of Acts, and uh, what we've been learning through uh, uh, the study of, of uh, the place that Israel has in prophecy, as we did a few weeks ago, and, and now uh, even more deeply coming into the book of Isaiah, that uh, everything that Jesus said he would do, he did. And therefore, when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And so we have to realize that uh, even if we hold a, a, a different view as far as the coming of Jesus for his church, as I said before uh, at Calvary Chapel, we've always uh, taken the pre tribulational position which means before the tribulation period the Lord will come for his church there are others who believe that the Lord will come in the middle of the tribulation in the middle of the three and a half years uh, after the first three and a half years Jesus will come for his church and then the real great tribulation or the the heaviest or the hardest and the hottest part of the tribulation will will we'll take over that and then there are those who believe in in a post-tribulational view which means that Jesus won't come for his church until at the very end so the church goes through the tribulations, so there's various timings, but the important thing is in looking at tribulational positions is that uh, we all believe that Jesus is coming for his church, as the Bible says. So no matter where you have your, your view there, uh, he's still coming. When we talk about millennial positions, uh, you know, a pre-millennial position, which is what we believe here at Calvary Chapel, that uh, the uh, coming of Jesus will be at the beginning of the millennial period, a thousand-year reign of Christ, and of course he'll reign here on earth for a thousand years. There is a, a uh, post-millennial uh, post position that says that, you know, that, that doesn't hold to Jesus coming and setting up a, a literal thousand-year kingdom. And then there's an amillennial kingdom that says there's no millennium. It's just allegorical. But I tell you what, in this one chapter where it mentions, I believe it's chapter 21 of the uh, book of Acts, it mentions a thousand years Six times. I think that's important. That uh, timing, you know, the, the number of times something is mentioned, it isn't just an allegory. I think, it, you know, it, it's it's a literal statement of a thousand-year reign. So anyway, with all that in mind, I'm I'm kind of uh, trying to set up in our hearts what, what's going to happen here tonight. But it it's always good to keep in mind this: that nothing is impossible with the Lord. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. That if the Lord says that He's going to catch us up at some point in time when He comes to meet us in the clouds, that's exactly what He's going to do. How He's going to do it, I don't know. But you see, in my finite mind, in your finite mind, we can't figure all that out. But if God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. Therefore, with God and with Christ, nothing is impossible. With that said, it is also important to note how wonderfully consistent God is in His Word when it comes to types and to pictures or illustrations of certain events that pertain to Israel and to the church as well. So as the Lord has promised to shelter His people from the most terrible attacks of the enemy, He offers a similar protection to His church. Persecution notwithstanding, because for 2,000 years the church has been persecuted. 
in some areas a lot worse than others. For whatever reason, God has blessed us. We don't know why, but we thank God for it. Possibly it is that we might, with all of the resources that God has given us in this particular country or in the, in, in the Western world, as it were, that we can go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ until everyone hears the gospel. For whatever reason, though, there's still persecution. Think about it in, in terms of what is taking place in our country today, the way people are trying to silence the church, trying to silence the name of Christ, trying to silence the, the voice of God through his people. That's a part of persecution. It may not be that they're beating us, but they're, uh, they're certainly trying to keep us silent. And uh, so we, we ought to realize that there are various ways of, of, of uh, exacting persecution. But uh, persecution notwithstanding, God has promised to shelter the church from his indignation, from his wrath. In other words, from his judgment upon the world. This is significant for us to understand. There are those who say, well, the church has to go through the tribulation. We need to be purified through it. Well, listen, we, we get purified all the time anyway, as it were. But that's not what the reason uh, tribulation is. You know, the tribulation is not for the church. That kind of tribulation, that kind of judgment, that kind of persecution, as it were, uh, really is not for the church. Again, we have to come back to our understanding that, that Israel is at the, at the very center of prophecy. If we, if we do not hold that Israel is the center of prophecy, then, yeah, then we can say, well, all kinds of things have to happen. So the church has been persecuted for 2,000 years, but has yet to undergo what is termed tribulation in respect to God's indignation and in respect to God's wrath. And there is a tremendous difference between persecution and tribulation, scripturally such as there is a difference between chastisement and judgment or wrath. There is a big difference. And we as Christians should know the difference. Because it, it, uh, chastisement applies to God's people. Chastisement applies to the, to, to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, as much as, as it applies to the church. We should understand chastisement. What is chastisement? God's discipline upon us. God's correcting us. God's bringing us back into the path that He has has called us into. Take, uh, for example, if you will, the, the following passages. Proverbs chapter 3, Old Testament. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, the correction, in other words, the pun not the punishment, but, but really the discipline of the Lord, uh, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, uh, the son in whom he delights. As far as the, the fact that uh, we as, as parents, you know, you as parents are, are, are being given some challenges in our, in our own society, in our PC society, you know, the, the politically correct society that today is, I think it was in, in one state that they're, they're trying to outlaw, I think it's California, you know, trying to outlaw any kind of, uh, of, of, of you know, kind of uh, punishment that you might have on your, on your own children. I mean, you know, now they're, they're telling you how to bring up your own kids, you know. But, but you see, the understanding here is that when you, when you do this, when you correct your children, what are you doing it for? You, because you love them. You want them to go in the right way. You want them to go in the right direction. We start throwing discipline. Now, what has happened? Look at what has happened to our schools since we've thrown God out of school, since we've thrown prayer out of school, since we've thrown discipline. Even if it's just moral discipline, it, it's been thrown out of school. What do we have today? I mean, we could spend hours just talking about that. But here again, Old Testament, 
hey, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Now, we apply that very same passage to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament in verses 7 and 8 where it says, if you endure chastening, God deals in... And this is the response to the writer of Hebrews quoting this passage in Proverbs. And he says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons for what son there uh, is there whom a father does not chasten. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So you see, there is a distinction between correction or chastisement and wrath or judgment from the standpoint of God wanting to wipe you out. (laughs) If you are his sons and daughters, if we are his sons and daughters, then he chastens us to correct us because he loves us. But then when you, now when you go to Luke chapter 21, the words of Jesus here in verses 34 through 36, he says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now notice the picture, what Jesus is saying. This, this, uh, this time of His coming is coming, this day that He mentions here, the day of the Lord, is coming uh, on people unexpectedly, but it says, For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. It's really interesting that a lot of people who criticize the pre-tribulational position, you know, where Jesus would come to take his church out of the way before the seven years of tribulation, will always say, well, you know, you guys just want to escape. Well, here Jesus said we should. Do you see that? Do you understand what he says? That you may be counted worthy to escape? Well, heck, you've got to be kind of worthy to escape. Might as well want to, want to escape something. Certainly something that the church is having to go through because we're not going to be dwelling on the earth. And Jesus mentioned that, who dwell on the face of the whole earth. If he chastens us as sons, that's different. Okay, with that in mind. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's move on. Verses 6 and 7. Listen to what uh, Paul says. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God... You see that phrase, the wrath of God? Are we talking about chastisement here? No. Are we talking about some kind of, of correction? No. The wrath of God comes upon whom? The sons of disobedience. There's a distinction. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Ah, we are separate from the sons of disobedience. Why? Because we are the sons of God. Now, we should be sons of obedience. (laughs) And that's what we are, but sometimes we kind of flub it and we'll be a little disobedient from time to time. But do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference. Once we are his sons, he doesn't treat us as the sons of disobedience. The same thing applies to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Listen, he says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. In other words, you once walked in them. You don't walk in them anymore. At least you shouldn't. You don't walk in them anymore. There's a distinction. Now jump down to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 
For here it says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols. And notice, that kind of connects with what it says in Colossians, because all of that other stuff we used to do was idolatry. But he says, you, How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, notice, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's delivering us from that wrath that is going to come upon whom? The sons of disobedience, not the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, same, same book, but uh, chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Is there not a distinction here? God did not appoint us to wrath, but, obtain salva- but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, in other words, whether we're alive or dead, we should live together with Him, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And by the way, when we go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, not yet, but when we get there, uh, listen, the, the, the very thing that we're going to see is Paul saying to us, comfort one another with this thought. Comfort, comfort one another with these words. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with this. My very reading of these scriptures to you tonight is done not only to teach you, it is done to comfort you. I'm wanting, to, I'm wanting you to realize the importance of the coming of Jesus Christ and the very fact that His coming for His church is an imminent thing. What I mean by that is this. There's nothing else that has to happen prophetically for Christ to come for His church. That's what I'm saying. That's why I believe strongly that Jesus is going to come for His church before all hell breaks loose. Pardon my French. It is an imminent thing. And we're going to see a little bit of that in just a moment. Lastly, though, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. These are the words of Jesus to the church in Philadelphia. And this is what He says to that church. Because you have kept my command to persevere. In other words, listen, if we are in His true church, if we are in the true body of Christ, we are true believers in the Lord. Listen, we have to persevere through this life. But nonetheless, He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon what? The whole world. To test those who dwell on the earth. I'll keep you from that. And with all these scriptures uh, scriptures in mind and heart, we can now look at the connection between Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21, and the classic rapture passage, which is 1 Thessalonians 4. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. Now we're going to read this later, so keep your finger here, because we've got to come back and add some verses to it. But I want to begin at verse 16. Here's the classic passage for the rapture of the church. The snatching away. That's, that's really what the word rapture... You know, the rapture comes from a Latin word, rapere, but uh, it, in, in, the, in the Greek it's the word harpazo. And you'll see, I'll, I'll show you where that word is in, in verse 17. It means, it says caught up there, but, but literally it just means snatched away snatched away. That's a pretty picture, I think. Now, 
it says, for the Lord himself. This is great, isn't it? The Lord himself, not sending some, you know, busload of angels down here to get us. The Lord himself. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God. Now, we're not going to go into the greatest of details yet, uh, but uh, suffice it to say that those who are here and alive, those who are dead, waiting the, the resurrection, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, we, we will hear these things. We will hear the shout. We will hear the voice. We'll hear the trumpet. Then he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain. And I want, I want to stress a word there that Paul uses. Then we. You'll notice he doesn't say they, as if to say, well, this will come out of my lifetime. So those who much later on will come, they will. No, he doesn't say that. He says when we. Then we who are alive. Paul is including himself in those who are ready and waiting for this very event to happen. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, snatched away, together with them, the dead in Christ, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Then we, not they, not them, then we. Paul says, I'm looking to. It can happen. They thought it was going to happen then. It is at this point that I want to come back to our study from last time to note that the last two verses of Isaiah 26 present a prophetic phrase that will not only affect the remnant that has been mentioned throughout the little apocalypse. Now remember, the little apocalypse is chapters 24 through 27. The, 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 the passages that are describing the, the, uh, the day of the Lord, you know, that terrible day of the Lord. You know, we've kind of touched upon it a little bit. That's why it's called the little apocalypse. We see this whole picture out before us uh, in this section. But, but uh, So it will not only affect the remnant that has been mentioned throughout this section, but will also sp- speak significantly to the church. For, 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 practical, uh, for practically the same reasons. Though we don't ever really have the church being Israel and Israel being the church. There's two distinct uh, entities. But let me state parenthetically, let me just kind of put my parentheses here, uh, that in studying these passage, or these passages, I should say, and I'm speaking very personally now, and somewhat uh, from the standpoint of... of um, you know, um, speculative reasoning, as it were. But nonetheless, I came to see a pattern that, that caused me to believe, caused me to think. Try to see this picture of Paul sitting down, writing to the Thessalonian church, writing to those in, in the church in Thessalonica. While he's writing this letter, I, I, just, I, I could believe that, that, the, that, that Paul had before him on his little table, or maybe his big table. But nonetheless, he had the Isaiah scrolls in front of him as he was 
composing this said letter. The scroll that would have contained what we know as chapter 26. There weren't chapter verses uh, annotated in, in the scrolls that they had. But I, I'm thinking as I'm, I'm hearing and I'm reading and I'm seeing these things being written to the church in Thessalonica that Paul, a Jew, who knew the Old Testament, who knew the Hebrew Scriptures by memory, would say, there's something here that the church needs to understand. The scroll that would have contained chapter 26. Listen carefully. Isaiah 26, verse 17. Just, these are just little, just little tidbits, you know. Take it for what it's worth. But Isaiah writes here, As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. The consistency of prophecy and prophetic language is that that always means something that has to do with the end and the end times. With Israel. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Speaking of Israel. But look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. Now remember the, the Thessalonians, uh, those in Thessalonica were primarily Gentiles. And so we find here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, he says, For when they say peace and safety. And by the way, we could spend a whole night talking about this verse. Well, we're not going to do it tonight. But not next week either, because I've got to get back to 27. But one of these days, we're going to do that. But for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. And notice, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. You see the connection? And they shall not escape. And they shall not escape. What has he already said in chapter 4? We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Go to Isaiah 26, verse 19. Little allusions here, little little things to, to look at, little, uh, 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 as I said, tidbits to consider. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body. What's Isaiah saying? We shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing. You who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now, go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and look at verses 13 through what we already read. And Paul says, but I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. You see, the hope is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. The hope is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. The fact that man will resurrect. There is resurrection. And he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, those who have died in Christ. Many of the people in Thessalonica, they, they were being told other different things that those who had died in Christ, oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't rise. And they were worried about their, their family members that had gone on to be with the Lord or, you know, that had died in Christ and wondered, you know, what, what's going to happen to them? Paul is assuring them and reassuring them, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
And notice verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. It's an interesting word here. If you have a King James version of the Bible, it says prevent those who are asleep. Now, literally it is translated in the New King James to, uh, to precede, which means you, we will not go before those who have passed away. But the interesting thing is that prevent can also mean prevent. We won't prevent those who have passed away from rising again. It's a great little word study. You might want to do that on your own sometime. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, uh, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Your dead shall live. Isaiah 26 verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. I just have that thought in my mind when I read this and I read that and I say... You know, it wouldn't surprise me if he had that scroll open there. He says, and this is, on the, this is from the word of the Lord. The language now that is used in verse 20 that uh, is in our text in Isaiah. Let me read verse 20. Come, my people. Beautiful little passage. Come, my people. Enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment until the indignation is past. Isaiah 26 verse 20. This, the language here, while dealing with the remnant salvation, the remnant of Israel, while dealing with the remnant salvation out of the time of trouble, has prophetic meaning for the church in that the picture given here is that from the Jewish wedding tradition. This is, this is actually a picture from the traditional Jewish wedding now, things have changed down through the years, but some things haven't. And if you're familiar somewhat with some of the uh, aspects of the traditional Jewish uh, wedding ceremony, uh, you'll, you'll be familiarized with it very quickly because you see the hoopah. How many of you know what the hoopah is? The hoopah is, you know, if you've been to a traditional Jewish wedding, it is, uh, you've got four men that hold these poles and, and it has a tent, you know, and they have the bride and the groom come under that tent. That, that's uh, signif significant because it's saying that this is, this is, uh, the, this is the, the, the place where they are, the chamber, in other words. This is the chamber for this couple. Now, the, the wedding is held underneath that, but symbolic, uh, because in times past, especially in the day of Jesus, probably before that and probably sometime after that, there was a real tent where they could actually close the doors. You'll, you'll see why in just a moment. Nobody else should be seeing what's going on inside there, if you get my drift. Anyway, so the hoopah being representative of the chamber in which the bride and the groom hide. This is the idea here. The bride and the groom hide for seven days is quite significant to the church, the, the bride of Christ. Seven days. Not three and a half days. And not just in and out. 
Those who get married don't want to go in and out anyway. So you understand what I'm saying. Okay, you guys aren't getting it. It's just going over your head. All right. You'll, you'll get it in a moment. So let me quickly describe to you then, uh, in, in a somewhat step-by-step manner, the, the essential events in a traditional Jewish wedding, or at least one in, in Jesus' time. And as you follow along, as you follow, listen and think of the spiritual implications. Listen. First of all, oh, by the way, there's eight points here. Seven, and an eighth being the new beginning. All right, so here's the first one is the beginning. Here's the beginning. If you're writing this down, this is the beginning. Ah, there it is. See, that's the beginning. And we're not talking about, uh, you know, somebody trying to find where baseball is mentioned in the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, by the way, right? In the big inning. All right. I just want to see if you guys know anything about baseball. Maybe not. Okay. This is the beginning of the, of the, of the Jewish uh, marriage, uh, uh, wedding ceremony. The groom's father. This is before there's even invitations given. And all. The groom's father made and approved the choice of the bride. Listen carefully. The groom's father made and approved the choice of the bride. John chapter 10. I want to give you a few scriptural supports here, but there's a lot of other things that will come to mind if you listen carefully. The groom's father made and approved the choice of the bride. John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now look at this. My Father, who has given them to me. You see it? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father made and approved the choice of the bride. You've been chosen by God Himself. And why, I don't know. But then again, you look at me and you think, I don't know either. So, but you see what I mean? God made the choice. God chose us. Not we ourselves. The second part, the groom's promise. The second part of the whole traditional Jewish wedding ceremony is the groom's promise, which was a covenant or contract promise that is made by the groom. He drinks a cup of wine to seal the covenant. By the way, that was done also at Passover. He drinks a cup of wine to seal the covenant. He pays a price to show that he is serious. Does that sound familiar? The groom groom pays a price to show that he's serious. What did Jesus do for us? He drank the cup. Remember the garden? Let this cup, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He drinks the cup. And then he goes to the cross. And he pays the price. And then he gives a speech of promise to his bride that he would come to claim her soon. John 14, what does he say before he goes to the cross? He gave the promise. Let not your heart be troubled. Have you ever wondered why, I know I'm kind of interjecting here, but have you ever wondered why, you know, there's some people that are always worried, oh, I'm getting too old and I need to get married right away. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God? Jesus said, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many hoopas. Many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The promise. The promise. The groom's promise. Thirdly, the groom's... Whoops, that's not it. That was Sunday. <laughs> How did Sunday get in there? The third, the third uh, point is the groom's preparation for his bride. The groom's preparation for his bride. Isn't it a good thing I can see what you guys see? <laughs> the third is the groom's preparation for his bride. Now the groom prepares the hoopah where they will stay for seven days. Are you starting to get the picture? Okay. The, hoop, the, the groom prepares the hoopah where they will stay for seven days. He works until it pleases the Father. Listen carefully. He works until it pleases the Father, and then he may go after his bride. Mark chapter 13. The words of Jesus again. Verses 32 and 33. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Okay, we've got to get to Mark. There we go. Uh, Mark thirteen thirty two. Uh, if you can't go, uh... <laughs> Mark thirteen thirty two. My remote's not working. All right, there it is. <sighs> but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. All right, this is something that Jesus chooses. A lot of people say, see, well, Jesus, how can he be God if he doesn't know something? He chooses to follow this pattern. Listen carefully. Nor the Son, but only the Father. What does that sound like? It sounds like the wedding ceremony here. That's what he's trying to teach us here. He says, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. That's part of the ceremony. That's part of this whole thing. Why? Because now we come to the bridesmaids. This is the, uh, 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 the fourth point. The bridesmaids. Now who are the bridesmaids? The bridesmaids were the unmarried friends who attend the bride and provide light for the groom who comes at night. This is a very interesting part of this. Now I'm going to ask you to read Matthew 25 verses 1 through 13 later. I don't have time to go through the whole passage. But I want to read this part to you. Verses 1 through 6 gives you a little bit of an indication now of something that is of, of great importance. And by the way, you know, a lot of people have written great things about, uh, I mean, great works of, of, uh, have been written about uh, the, uh, the parable of the ten virgins. And, uh, but, but, but they missed the point many times, even though there's a lot of good... Uh, spiritual lessons we can learn from it, they, they miss something in the prophetic because they're not looking at, at these ten virgins as being uh, representative of Israel. Listen carefully. 
Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And notice verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. That sounds like Israel. Now, there is a remnant. Remember the remnant. There will be those that were ready when Jesus came, when the bridegroom came. John the Baptist was ready. The apostles were made ready. But what happened with the rest? Follow along. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. You know what that was? That was the shout. The shout. Didn't we read about a shout in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? The bridesmaids play a great great role in all of this, this, this thought, you know. Now the fifth point here. The bridegroom comes. The groomsmen would run ahead of the groom and shout that he was coming. So we, got a, not, we didn't get ahead of ourselves, but we, we're tying this all together. The groomsmen would run ahead uh, of the groom and they would shout that he was coming. By the way, the, the best man, you know who the best man was for, for Jesus? John the Baptist. He was the best man. And, and he'll just, uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But, but, but anyway, uh, the, the groomsmen would run ahead, the, the, the groom, they would shout that he was coming. And while the father's head was turned, this was tradition. While the father's head was turned, the groom would steal the bride. The wedding party then would, uh, would go back to the groom's house to meet the guests. Uh, this was all a part of this whole thing. Why, was it, why were they going through this whole thing? We're teaching us something. And Jesus was applying it to his bride. The Bible tells us the bride of Jesus is the church. Interesting, isn't it? The wedding party would go back to the groom's house. Well, listen, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, we've read it. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that brings us to the bridal chamber now, you see. Brings us to the bridal chamber. The bride and the groom enter the bridal chamber where the marriage is consummated. Now you know why they have to lock the doors. Okay. Okay. The party waits outside until the groom, until the groom tells the best man that it is consummated. And then the guests rejoice for seven days. Now in John twenty nine, uh, three twenty nine, John three twenty nine. This, these are the words of John the Baptist. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You see, the best man had the job of saying, "It's done." The marriage is consummated. 
And that's who John was. A voice crying out in the wilderness. Here he comes. The bridegroom is here. Let me see if I got my count right. Okay. The seventh point, which is now the complete, the completed thing. Married life begins. The new couple goes to the father's home to begin married life. That was the tradition. The couple would go to the father's home. On the eighth day, that's the eighth that I was talking about, a new beginning. We too will go to the Father's house. We'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb and then go with Christ in His reign in His kingdom here, here on earth for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is He who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. And again, I mentioned six times, a thousand years is mentioned to make it very clear. The word come, by the way, in Isaiah 26, 20, come, my people, enter your chambers. The word come in Isaiah 26, 20 can coincide with the same word found in Revelation chapter 4. In verse 1, where it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. The word in the, in the Greek is metatauta, after these things. And of course, this verse corresponds to the outline of the book of Revelation given in chapter 1, verse 19. There's an outline that, uh, that the Lord gives here in Revelation 1, 19. Write the things, notice, to John, he says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place. Three things. There's the, there's the outline of the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen is the vision of Christ in, in chapter 1. When you read chapter 1 of Revelation, you see this beautiful vision of Christ. And then uh, the, the second thing is the things which are present deals with the messages to the seven churches in Revelations, uh, Revelation chapter, chapters 2 and 3. So that, that is where we are today. The, I mean, the church is still here. The church is waiting for the coming of the Lord. Uh, there is that focus in the present that, uh, you know, God is dealing with the church. But thir- the, thirdly, the third part of the outline is, then write the things which will take place after this, metatauta which refers to chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation, and it has to be stated that the church is no longer mentioned after this statement in chapter 4. There is not, there is not any, any reference to the church from chapter 4 on through chapter 19. 
to make it clear the chambers of, of Isaiah 26:20 corresponds to the statement made by Jesus to his disciples as I read already in John chapter 14 verse 2 where it says in my father's house are many hoopas and many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you that is part of the wedding ceremony so I'm just I'm just rehashing some of this stuff and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself receive you to me that where I am, there you will be also. There you may be also. And how beautiful that this relates to what Jesus prays in His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Think about this. Just this one verse, John 17 verse 24. Even though I would encourage you to read all of John 17. But look at verse 24 where Jesus says in His prayer to the Father, Father, He says, I desire that they also whom You gave Me may be with Me where I am. That they may behold My glory which You have given Me. For You loved Me before the foundation of the world. And how wonderful that, you know, before he even states this prayer, he's already said to his people, so that where I am, there you may be also. But he says in his prayer, Lord, I desire, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That is his love for his church. That is his love for his bride. That they will be with me where I am. And of course, the great blessing that we have as believers in Jesus Christ today as Christians is the fact that Jesus said to us, I'm going to be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You can be sure that Jesus will stand for his bride. Jesus will stand for the one he loves. And then, of course, Isaiah gives us the full extent of the message to bring us back to where we began. And so verses 20 and 21, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until, notice, until the indignation, the wrath, the judgment is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. Now, we saw that phrase in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and no more cover her slain. The Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever name you are familiar with. But the Lord God is the protector of His people, Israel, hiding them away in the wilderness of the peoples as, as Ezekiel prophesies in Ezekiel 20, verses 33-38, through 38, when he says, As I live, says the Lord, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out uh, from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. By the way, during that time of the day of the Lord, there, the people will be leaving, many of them will be leaving, out of out of Jerusalem, they'll be heading into what's called uh, Jordan. There's an area there called Petra. We'll talk about that at another time. But nonetheless, this is what uh, Ezekiel is referring to. And then he says, uh, uh, and, "And there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you," says the Lord God. "I will make you pass under the rod 
and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's for Israel. That's for his people. Jesus alluded to that in in his great dissertation, as it were, of of what was to happen in the end time and in, in the day of the Lord. But comparing the language used by Isaiah and by Paul, certain things begin to fall into place. Suffice it to say that there, there is no safer place in the entire universe than in the shadow of the Almighty. There's no safer place in all of the creation than to be in the shadow of the Almighty. And this is why the psalmist in Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Lastly, I leave you with Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Did you know that Jesus is our strong tower? We can run to Him and we're safe. The great thing to know is that when Jesus does come, we'll be with him. Now, I want to make it very clear when we talk about the rapture of the church, we're not talking about the second coming. As we've mentioned many times, that Jesus will plant his feet upon the Mount of Olives and, and then, of course, bring with him, as, as the scripture says, the ten thousands of his saints with him to take Jerusalem. That that will come, certainly, after he comes for his people. But you notice that it says he comes in the clouds. And we've been studying, as a matter of fact, in, in Acts chapter 1. As you have seen him leave, so shall you see him return. Those who are dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him and and meet him in the clouds and there in the air and, there, and, and, and ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Folks, be comforted. Jesus is coming. As he promised, he said he will do it. He's going to do it. Let's, let's get our hearts ready for that return. Let's pray.